Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Twash, who shall see these presents greetings? On behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer here at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the United States of the United States government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who could not join us today. So we ask that you keep our keep your own webcams off uh, to help us stream smoothly. And at the conclusion of our discussion, we'll have question and answer session. So if you have questions, just type them into the group chat and I'll go through them in the order that we received. So in today's strategic environment, uh, we've returned to, back to conversations to great power competition, the competition between uh, two large nations in the pursuit of their interests and to influence interstate relations. Uh, and as our focus has shifted from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan towards our pacing threat in the Pacific, uh, so has our focus away from irregular warfare in many stances. Uh, but not every nation is a great power. And as we've seen since the end of World War II, and especially since the end of the Cold War, not every military conflict is between two great powers. So where do we focus our limited attention in this new strategic environment? So here to talk us about why we should continue to study irregular warfare during a power period of great power competition is non-resident fellow for the Brute Kulak Center, Mr. Preston McLaughlin. He's a retired Marine Colonel who helped stand up the Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Company, spent time with 3MF, Marfor PAC, Joint War Fighting Center, and some time here at Marine Corps University. Uh, he was the commanding officer of the Combat Assault Battalion and of Marine Corps Security Force Regiment. After retirement, he's been part of the faculty for the Citadel, Daniel Morgan Graduate School, the U.S. Army War College, and, Te and Texas A&M University. And currently, he does our connecting file to the Irregular Warfare Center. So, sir, I will turn it over to you for your opening statements. All right. Thank you, Kiwi. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to come speak today. Um, what I'm going to talk about today are strategic partnerships. Um, to my uh, study and surprise in the fall of last year, uh, Senator John McCain had urged in the past, we need to really look at irregular warfare, that the United States has a poor track record with it, and that we need to understand our uh, competitors and adversaries' use of it. And so after uh, Senator McCain passed, Representative Matt Thornberry from Texas actually had written into the 2021 NDAA a functional center for the study of irregular warfare. And the intent was to create strategic partnerships where academia, government, and business work together on problems related to irregular warfare. So this past year, uh, the initial operating capability for the DOD's Irregular Warfare Center was begun in October of last year with six full-time personnel, and they're growing to about 20 plus additional contract personnel and support. And they are currently located at the Defense Security Cooperation University in Crystal City, Virginia. So as I collected my thoughts as to what to discuss today, I put together about an eight-page article that I'm going to refer to uh, with my notes in it. And uh, once we're done with the podcast, I'm going to ask uh, Kiwi if we can post it so people have an opportunity to look at it because it has uh, links and connections to the uh, Regular Warfare Center. Great. Um, so why now? Why do this? Um, so as they did their mission analysis and looked at what the NDAA asked them to do, the Regular Warfare Center looked at kind of three lines of effort. Their mission is to amplify and collaborate to build an innovative and adaptable global network IW community of interest. The second line of effort is to strategically illuminate current and future irregular threats, crises, and obstacles. And the third LOE is to address current and future regular threats to US allies and partners by providing optionality. And as stated earlier, this was a NDAA required act or task for DOD. 
under the Mac Thornberry NDAA for fiscal year 2021. So what is a regular warfare? As they began to stand up and do research and reach out to make partnerships with other organizations, they looked at the current Department of Defense definition. And it says that irregular warfare is a struggle among state and non-state actors to influence populations and affect legitimacy. IW favors indirect and asymmetric approaches, though it may employ the full range of military and other capabilities in order to erode an adversary's power, influence, and will. It includes specific missions of unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and related activities such as military information support operations, cyberspace operations, countering threat networks, counterthreat finance, civil military operations, and security cooperation. They all shape the information environment and population-focused areas of competition and conflict. So as you can see, that's a rather complex, long definition. So in March, we had a session in Crystal City with several allies and partners from Eastern Europe, from the Baltics and Scandinavia, and we looked at what their definition was, whether they were a NATO or non-NATO country. And they, to our surprise, they were using hybrid quite a bit. A lot of people use gray zone activities. And so we looked at that and said, well, you know, there's no standard definition. So we had participants from Joint Staff J7 there, and they said, you know, we need to revisit this. So as part of a working group that the Irregular Warfare Center works with the Joint Staff, that'll be one of the areas they'll be discussing is what is the future of regular warfare and what is really the fitting definition. So when you think about irregular warfare, it's been around since millennia. Uh, our allies use it. I think the British, you know, with Colin Gubbins and SOE, they use irregular warfare. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, when you read it, you have the Baker Street Irregulars, which were his spies and informants. So there's some history back there that a lot of people have a lot of different connotations for what irregular warfare is. Uh, one of the most interesting definitions was from General von der Heidt, who was a German paratroop officer in World War II, later became a political scientist, and he felt that it was a military phenomenon in the 20th century, that it was something different in regards to conflict. So our current definition kind of resides during the global war on terror around 2006-2007 era. And one of the proponents of irregular warfare was Dr. Michael G. Vickers, who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict. He was also later the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. And if you've ever seen Charlie Wilson's war, he's the young CIA officer that wants to go after stingers in the movie to change the dynamics in the conflict between the Soviets and the Mujahideen. So Dr. Vickers has quite a bit of experience in this area. And just by chance, he released a new biography this month called By All Means Available. It talks about his career in special forces, the CIA, in industry, and then back with DOD again. And what's interesting is he was also given the portfolio of looking at future conflict. So I highly encourage you to get a copy of his book and read the chapter on fighting the new Cold War, because he talks about long-range strike, he talks about influence operations, talks about cyber, so it's a very well-rounded overview from his observations of working that portfolio and then also working at the Think Tank Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessment. So the Center for Regular Warfare, uh, they had this gathering in March of this past year uh, with our allies and partners from the Baltic and Eastern Europe. And one of the IWC authors and researchers is Dr. Sandor Fabian. He and Gabrielle Kennedy 
put together a report on research conducted and surveys conducted with these partners and allies. Uh, Dr. Fabian is a graduate of Marine Corps University. Uh, he attended EWS. Um, he also attended Naval Postgraduate School and went through their national security program, which is called Defense Analysis now, I, I believe. But his career was in uh, Hungarian Special Forces working with NATO. So he's familiar with the U.S. capabilities and he really brings the connection uh, between our European allies and partners to this issue. And what they found out with their research is there's no overarching or consistent definition among surveyed institutions in Europe. This trend trails through other findings such as a lack of codified threats, lack of institutionalized education on irregular warfare, and limited publicly available research on relevant topics. The term hybrid or gray zone activities may be used by some European institutions and organizations. So I encourage you, if you have a chance and you want to know more, go to the Regular Warfare Center site and on there is a report, the conceptualization of irregular warfare in Europe. And they're going to continue this series and visit other regions around the globe because part of their charter is to develop uh, strategic partnerships. They belong in the same orbit with other defense security cooperation centers like the Daniel K. Inouye Center in Honolulu, Hawaii, the Asia Pacific Center, uh, the Marshall Center in Garmisch, uh, the William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Studies, and the Africa Center, as well as the Arctic Center. So they're very well connected with these other groups, and that is how they are able to go and conduct research and make connections in those countries and regions. So how is warfare changing in the 21st century? with the terms of hybrid warfare, IO, cyber, political and economic warfare by our adversaries, and the use of proxies by great powers. An example of proxies is the Wagner Group. A Russian private military company is seen in several areas from Ukraine to Russia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Libya, and Mali. Technology has also enabled adversaries as soon as some commercial applications are adapted for military use. This includes robotics and artificial intelligence that are seen more frequently in today's business environment and as we've seen on the battlefield in the Ukraine. So China, Russia, and Iran are willing practitioners of campaigns of disinformation, deception, sabotage, and economic coercion, as well as proxy, guerrilla, and covert operations. This increasingly complex security environment suggests a need for a revised understanding of IW to account for its role as a component of great power competition. It's in this competitive space that the Department of Defense must innovate, we must creatively mix our traditional combat power with proactive dynamic and unorthodox approaches to IW that can help shape, prevent, and prevail against our nation's adversaries and maintain favorable regional balances of power alongside our key partners and allies. So why is this important? Um, as you look at it and you think about below the level of armed conflict and you look at bad actors out there doing that, they have studied Western militaries uh, probably since Desert Storm and they have come up with means to counter our strengths. And so as you look at below the level of armed competition, we're not very good at that right now. Um, in the class that I teach at Texas A&M, it's uh, international policy and the role of the military. And we get into uh, interagency, intergovernmental work, uh, and we also look at trans-regional or transnational threats. So we could probably do a better job in these areas. And the Irregular Warfare Center is, is working on tools in the kit bag to do that. One of the areas they're looking at is wargaming. One is for senior leaders, whether they're GS-15 and above or 06 and above. It's a transformational Irregular Warfare Fault Leaders course. Uh, it's about a five-day course and it gets into strategic planning. 
they also have a wargaming branch that does analysis and they have published a study called Utopia or Oblivion, an examination of war games and irregular warfare and futurism, how games can contribute to best practices for doing so. Their definition of futurism is exploration of what could be undertaken for the purpose of shaping and what will we uncover and what assumptions about the future will we discover. And they quote other futurists such as Edward Cornish talking about the six super trends like technical progress, technology progress, economic growth, uh, improving human health, increasing mobility, environmental decline, and incredible deculturation, which could lead to anarchy in some situations. So they've used various government organizations that use futures. Um, the Coast Guard has a pretty good program when you look at how they do gaming. They look at future scenarios and it allows them to run many different repetitions to determine, okay, here are the possible outcomes or best practices we need to be looking at. Uh, so part of their wargaming group will be going to uh, Helsinki, Finland here next month uh, with the Naval Postgraduate School to work with the Hybrid Center of Excellence there in Helsinki. And they will be looking at uh, various wargaming techniques. Uh, during our session with the partners from Eastern Europe, Scandinavia, and Baltics, we actually had a German officer from the Hybrid Center of Excellence, and he actually set up the uh, war game he uses for education. It was interesting because they were looking at 13 different areas instead of the six just regular multi-domain operation functions because they were looking at whole of society and whole of government issues. So it's interesting to see what other countries perceptions are based on their culture and their government. So what else should we be thinking about with irregular warfare? How about the concept of strategic shaping, which was published in uh, Joint Forces Quarterly, where they're talking about a coercive strategy employing an integrated whole of government approach that aims to complicate an adversary's calculus and target his strategic intentions not just his forces. So it allows you different pathways and a lot of the pathways kind of echo MCDP1. By rapidly presenting the adversary with multiple dilemmas, degrading adversary leadership sense of control, enhancing the complexity of the situation, instilling doubt in the adversary's leadership and of their own capabilities. By posturing to react globally instead of locally, leveraging U.S. strengths against adversary weaknesses. Campaigning enables the use of strategic shaping. So Irregular Warfare Center has embraced campaigning as part of IW doctrine and componency, and they are focusing on that to include they have a center for regular warfare now and a partnership with the West Virginia National Guard at Camp Dawson, which they use for senior leader strategic education in addition to it being a training area, training ground for all services and in our agency. The great power competition is now our primary national security challenge. The departure from conducting almost two decades of continuous irregular warfare against violent extremist organizations worldwide, the requirement for mastery of irregular warfare persists. Far from abandoning these critical competencies to sharpen these capabilities for application against peer competitor nation state adversaries. So as I've mentioned, the current brick and mortar home is at the Defense Security Cooperation University, which has the advantage of connections to the regional centers. It also has connections to people that will be uh, SCOs in the U.S. Embassy in the future, or people that manage IMET with uh, foreign partners and allies. 
and people going to defense attache duty and other foreign area officers uh, and, and those type programs. Um, we will see if they stay there. Uh, there may be an opportunity in the future to locate into another facility, but for right now, they're making the most of the facility and the relationship. They have a very close relationship with the university there. And just a couple of minor examples, uh, in addition to the allies and partners session on what is IW, they had a PME day in April. Uh, I think Marine Corps University provided representatives from uh, Marine Corps War College. Um, I think Joint Special Operations University, Naval Postgraduate School, a lot of different folks that work in this area were there to share ideas and practices. And then uh, there was a civilian university uh, day, which I attended with other colleagues from Texas A&M University. And uh, what they're willing to do is provide grants, federal grants to people that would like to conduct research in these areas. And they're willing to work and collaborate uh, on those programs. And if you go to the website, there is a link on events that has just recently been updated, and there is a ton of events going on. And I didn't want to give them all to you today because I would rather you go to the link, see what's out there. Um, a, a more recent close to the uh, boat event was Phoenix Challenge in Atlanta, Georgia working with uh, Georgia Tech University, talking about cross-government, academia, and private sector collaboration, and addressing challenges to operations in the information environment. So that's a theme that's common with some of the issues that we look at in Marine Corps and Navy. Uh, a regular warfare colloquium, they put out a call for faculty to nominate presenters that wanna conduct research, and I'm sure there will be more of these in the future but uh, it's July 27th and 28th next week. Uh, they are also offering the TILT-C course. I believe it's going to go to U.S. Army Special Operations Command. And they also do uh, translations because a lot of the folks work in language and cultural uh, sensitive billets or have been trained in awareness or in, in those studies. For example, uh, they have just translated a pro-Russian civil resistance handbook to give you an idea of what a potential competitor's uh, doctrine is in those areas. It would have been nice to have something like that in 2014 uh, with Crimea. Um, and they also publish a newsletter, just like the Brute Krulak Center publishes a new newsletter, give everyone an idea of what's going on. And it has tons of points of contact and uh, our director there, uh, Dr. Dennis Walters, uh, he always publishes his latest intent and ideas in that newsletter. Uh, the chief of staff, uh, Ms. Lori Leffler, uh, the same. And if you need uh, connections, please let me know and I'll connect you with Eric Herr, who's their uh, deputy for operations in the center. So why is it important to study this? Um, we just have not had in the United States a very good track record, even though we were fairly good as practitioners of irregular warfare early in our history, like in the revolution, uh, and during World War II with, uh, developing, uh, clandestine and resistance networks through the OSS and other organizations like the Allied Intelligence Bureau in uh, Australia and the Philippines, SACO in China. You know, we had a pretty good track record back then, and a lot of people don't realize that the Hmong and Laos were a huge program by the CIA and the U.S. ambassador in Laos uh, for many, many years, which was kind of a supporting effort against the main effort in Vietnam at the time. So it's time to hit the books and understand where we made successes, where we failed. Where do we need to look to the future? Because technology continues to change, society continues to change. And so maybe our ability to counter these things, we need to be more diverse in thought and capability. 
And so that's why it's important that organizations like the Regular Warfare Center exist, as does the Brood Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. Um, I highly encourage you to look at their uh, futures scenario uh, paper and, and their wargaming uh, capability, because I think there are wide areas of collaboration there for the future. So that concludes my prepared remarks from notes from the article, and we will post the article in the next day or so for everyone's use. Great, thank you. Uh, for anyone who has questions, if you wanna go ahead and uh, post those into the chat and I'll uh, ask them as I receive them. Uh, I'm gonna start with uh, one question I did have. We have plenty of stories of folks, you know, as they were going to Iraq and Afghanistan sort of towards the early days after the invasion was complete and we were starting to go through uh, the operations that we had there over the, probably the majority of our time spent in both those countries. And you know, we have stories of folks, you know, pulling out the small wars manual and rereading a lot of that, you know, things that we hadn't really necessarily studied for a whole lot leading into it, haven't been focused so so hardcore into the Cold War and Fulda Gap and those kind of uh, places. So is the regular warfare center, are you guys writing doctrine? You, know, you talked about, you know, creating a definition for it, but is the doctrine writing a thing that you guys are doing as well? So they're working with uh, the joint staff working group on regular warfare. And there's a couple of different strategic partners in that group. And one of them is Joint Staff J7 Doctrine. And they participated in the March event with all the European and Baltic uh, partners. And there were a couple of alternative definitions that were proffered by academic institutions. I want to say one or two of them were from people working in PME institutions. So I think they're very close to staffing a change to that definition because they were very aware that this definition is a bit dated closer to the global war on terror. Um, the Marine Corps had an irregular warfare center here in Quantico and it used to be over where uh, training command is over by EWS. Uh, it was in the trailers with Kaokal initially and then they moved into the trailers with training command. And they were a big help to deploying units and to commanders. And I think they were also the proponent for the rewrite of the Small Wars Manual. Uh, towards the end of the global war on terror, as we're disengaging and we're looking at funding, I think the last modern day Marine exposition prior to COVID, um, there was a lot of talk to include a Marine Times article stating, we won't lose sight of this issue because of our institutional memory and relationship with it. But we also understand there's limited resources. And right now we need to focus on great peer competition. So what Senator McCain and Representative Thornberry has done, they've kind of held DOD's feet to the fire by providing the resources saying, okay, keep us surprised in Congress of what you're doing so that we can continue to improve. So we're talking about, you know, institutional knowledge, maintaining this in a, what's probably going to quickly become a, you know, a financially austere environment, potentially, you know, especially when we're, you know, force design 2030 is a big deal. You know, we're releasing units, deactivating units in order to fund and create other equipment, other units. You know, so how do we, you know, we're concentrating on this great power competition. So how do we justify, you know, that, you know, maintaining that focus on what we think is not going to be necessarily the next war, you know, because, you know, what's to say you, you fight the war today with the, the military you built before. So, you know, what, what, how do we, how do we do that justification when we don't have a lot of money? Well, I think all the services across the board are uh, are realizing lean resources right now. What was interesting was seeing General Berger's outgoing comments on having joint goals. I, I applauded that because I'm a joint qualified officer. I used to work in the Joint War Fighting Center in Suffolk. And we need more of a joint focus across all the services. And right after General C.Q. Brown did his confirmation hearing, 
for chairman, he made that a point. It's in U.S. Naval Institute news is one of the daily uh, rollouts they send. And he says, we're going to have joint goals as well, joint objectives, and we're going to re-wicker the JROC process a little bit. And everybody's got to realize that we got to pull together for joint concepts, joint objectives to make these concepts work in the future. So I, I see that as a glimmer of hope on the horizon that uh, it's going to force us to knuckle down and, and figure those things out. When you talk about uh, limited resources, you know, this is just not a regular warfare issues for the U.S., but for regional partners and allies. One of the best examples I can give you is there's a flag officer here either this week or next week from the Philippine Coast Guard that's coming to talk to East-West Center. And one of the things they've been doing here recently is pushing back on the fishing fleets China has in the South China Sea in their economic zone. So what their Coast Guard has been doing is we've been teaching them about influence operations. So what they've been doing is filming and releasing either through video or through news articles when they capture the Chinese doing something that they say they're not doing. And I think if more allies and partners were able to do that, through the resources provided through this center, it would be a welcome thing. Thank you. Uh, so Albert Lee asks, um, irregular warfare has not gone away in Ukraine either. There have been the raids and excursions into Russia's Belgorod uh, region by Russian and now Chechen volunteers. Is there a tendency to overcorrect based on what just happened and what can be done to check that tendency if it is the case? I'll tell you, that's a great question. And I think a lot of it goes to balance. Um, so when you think of regular warfare, yes, there is a soft component to it, but there's also a regular force component to it. Um, when you look at NATO soft, they had a good partnership trying to train Ukrainian military. So did other allies and partners in NATO or in the EU. Uh, this reminds me of 30 plus years ago during Operation Just Cause, Operation Desert Storm, where SOF were used as a strategic asset, whether it was strategic reconnaissance or strategic direct action. Uh, and they were used for shaping operations. And I think we've kind of forgotten that a little bit because they were so heavily involved in counterterrorism and uh, direct action in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think we've gotten better at intelligence use. Uh, and if you've noticed, you know, Jerome McChrystal says it takes a network to defeat a network. And you look at what the IW Center is trying to do, they're trying to create strategic networks with regional partners and allies. And I think that's going to be able to help us balance what, what are the national interests of those countries and where do they need help? You're right. I think sometimes there may be a problem to overcorrect. Uh, so we you kind of touched on you know, previously where the U.S. You know we've had a tendency to have these capabilities to conduct irregular warfare. You, know, you mentioned civil war. I think it was Nathaniel Green's uh, unit, and then during World War II we had the elements with the SAS or uh, British SAS, but OSS uh, eventually going into the CIA. But um, you know when we talk about today and EABO, you know, we we're talking about, hey, we're going to have to have Marines living off the land, uh, you know, contracting and all that stuff. Or is there a, do we think that we're going to need to train Marines in order to conduct a regular warfare? Or are we going to continue to focus on the combating irregular warfare as opposed to combating and conducting? I think there's going to be a little bit of both. Um, you know, obviously, MARSOC is, is working with SOCOM. That's a huge uh, mission area for them. Uh, they're going to be heavily involved in it. I don't know if you've seen it, but the testimony by the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, the SEC Army, is they want to cut Army soft by like a huge percentage. So there's other organizations out there like Global Special Operations Foundation, which is a nonprofit. An advocate, 
they're saying, hey, you know, there, there needs to be some serious thought put to where, where we're going to make cuts. You know, where does it make sense? Um, I think your point of uh, regular warfare with a partner nation or ally is very important because when you look at the Philippines, we see them as a vital ally in the, in the, in the uh, Pacific. You know, we have a bilateral defense treaty with them. Uh, we were in World War II with them, bled with them, liberated, helped in their liberation. So they have their own problems when you look at Holo and Mindanao. And remember what happened in Marawi with ISIS. I mean, they have their own issues they have to deal with, as well as the uh, uh, Communist Party uh, also has a, an armed element in the Philippines. So how can we assist them in their problem sets so we can concentrate on other things we're doing with EABO and DMO. So I'm going to combine a comment that Albert had uh, with the next question that I have and looking at, um, you know, in the initial stages of uh, Ukraine and Russia, kind of the expectation was that if when Russia's invasion started, that the Ukrainian military was going to kind of be reduced to, to nothing and we were going to start seeing the conflict go more towards what we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, it hasn't gone that way. Uh, but my question is, is leading into wargaming, you know, are we wargaming kind of both ways in terms of, you know, a military that is able to withstand and we're seeing kind of units within that military conducting irregular warfare? And then the other end of the spectrum is, is, you know, a nation's military gets crushed to the point of ineffective. And then as a whole, they go toward probably more closely towards like the French resistance, uh, you know, going back to the World War II example. No, those are both great questions. And, uh, you know, I think after 2014, people didn't expect a whole lot out of Ukraine after Crimea had been seized by little green men in gray zone activities. Um, so what was quietly going on behind the scenes was NATO and the EU cooperating with their government, and they realized they needed a Western style of decision-making, uh, their doctrine, and especially of leadership. So uh, there were people who worked with them directly. Uh, it's come out in the press over the past year and a half. Uh, Major General Mike Rapp, who was a classmate of mine at Army War College, um, had also been at Sakhir previously. He was kind of a mentor to the Ukrainian military and uh, government. And then uh, not only was Ukraine looking at this issue and mobilizing their population to deal with the issue, there are other countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia that are looking at those issues as well. So NATO soft had for a while something called the Comprehensive Defense Handbook. And it was an open source, totally unclassified document hanging on their unclass website in Belgium. I don't think it's hanging up there anymore, but basically it was how to mobilize your population. How do you teach first aid? You know, I mean, basics, simple. And I think it came in very handy for the Ukrainians to use as a blueprint initially. And they also uh, had like a civil defense corps where they would bring people in and give them military training. So once these other countries in that region saw that, they were very concerned and I think they ramped up their mobilization activities as well. Because uh, if you don't have the will to fight or the capability, you're gonna be a soft target. And how, how do you become a hard target? And uh, if you wanna look at some good research on will to fight, uh, retired Marine uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ben Connable, Dr. Ben Connable, used to be with RAND, and I think he's with uh, another think tank here in town. I have to look him up. But he's written a uh, book on uh, Will to Fight, and it's, it's a pretty good uh, read to understand, okay, here's why some militaries do this, here's why others don't. And it really uh, did some soul searching of the intelligence community while they missed the mark. So this is from, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. Uh, Basir Rat, uh, they ask, are we focusing on, I think you mentioned whole of government before, you know, not just military irregular warfare, but looking at 
you know, portions of society that might use an opportunity like organized crime or some other folks that might use that opportunity to, you know, reach their own ends. I am familiar with the Center for a Secure Free Society, which studies Western Hemisphere issues. And our executive director is Joseph Schumeyer. I'm on the board of uh, directors there. And he has a team of scholars that looks at the entire Western Hemisphere. And uh, we see a nexus sometimes between trans-regional or transnational crime with other, other elements. Like when you look at the border of Venezuela and Colombia right now, it's kind of a mess. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of countries in the future that are dealing with similar issues. When you look at the Mediterranean basin, there are people from South Asia, from Africa, from all over trying to get in Europe, into Europe, not as in large numbers as there had been previously, but it's still a, a huge problem. And so this is part of that futures vision we were talking about is what are the best practices to deal with this or what are the possibilities in the future? And in addition to not only a regular warfare center looking at futures, the Ministry of Defense in the UK, I want to say in 2017 or 2018, they did a future study. And uh, our own Marine Corps intelligence activity used to do this a lot, publish an unclassified open source document so people can look at trends in the future. And I want to say it was trending towards these issues, you know, more instability, uh, porous borders, you know, criminal activity, supporting other activities. So I think one of the benefits we saw uh, or what made irregular warfare a little bit easier during World War II was the fact that we didn't have a an integrated surveillance network like we do today with, you know, the Internet, the Internet of Things uh, and all other kind of stuff. So Albert asks, um, how do we see an increasingly pervasive and automated surveillance affecting irregular warfare and counterinsurgency? Uh, he brings up the surveillance infrastructure uh, in Xinjiang, uh, calling it the new Chinese model. Uh, but also, you know, kind of the U.S.'s and other countries that are getting into it, you know, you know pervasive uh, drone usage uh, and then satellite technology as well in order to get kind of the imagery. So, you know, does the face of IW change in this kind of environment as compared to, say, World War II? Well, I think, you know, not only for IW, but for the intelligence community overall, technology makes things much more difficult. Also makes it easier for them as well. And it's in our favor. Um, I think a lot of Western militaries have forgotten how to conduct electronic warfare. I uh, saw that Congress here recently wants U.S. military to practice uh, electronic warfare on a large extended Western range complex in the Western half of the U.S. I think that would help because as you remember in the Cold War, it was measure, countermeasure, counter, countermeasure. So we need to learn to adapt. And I don't, I don't know if you followed any of Colonel Andy Milburn's work from the Mozart group, but he was talking about drones as well as Colonel Bill Edwards and killer drones, that if you don't have an air guard or some other kind of ability to know what's going on around you in the air environment, you're probably going to be open to attack. So counter UAS is a huge area that I think, you know, Western militaries need to pay more attention to. Uh, there's a lot more people out there selling drones, whether they're commercial or military. And uh, in the United States, I think we are finally starting to wrap our arms around legislation and law and regulation on uh, unmanned aerial systems, you know, commercial drones in the U.S because uh, it could be a huge problem if we don't look, look out for it. Yeah, I think we've seen that plenty of uh, open source footage coming out of Ukraine in terms of, you know, the usage of uh, drones, not just for ISR, but also for attack as well. Uh, I think, you know, loitering munitions are probably going to be a, a much bigger thing. So being able to kind of see and, and, and deal with that is going to be a pretty big deal. I know I was in a conversation uh, recently with a, an individual with the counter UAS for uh, Border Patrol, uh, Border Protection, uh, you know, and talking about, you know, the number of border excursions from UAS 
uh, around the United States is uh, in the tens of thousands, uh, but the number that they're actually able to counter, whether it's through physical destruction or takeover, uh, is you know in the dozens as compared to the the number of actual excursions. Uh, so I think we're kind of we're seeing that, and it'll be interesting to see how we go forward with that uh, into the future. Um, you know, especially seeing what we're seeing in the the Ukraine uh, in Ukraine and and Russia. Um, one of the questions from uh, Dr. Sakar, another uh, non-resident fellow with you, um, she says, thank you for your, your speech. And then looking at, you know, we're kind of already into a, a stage of kind of irregular warfare or hybrid conflict with China right now. Um, you know, she, we did a episode previously with her about, you know, China's threat to European security and kind of, you know, the, the method of which uh, China is kind of spreading out. Um, so her question is, is, uh, do you, what do you think needs to happen in order for the world to kind of recognize what China is doing in order to more, uh, to move forward? You know, you talked about, you know, we're starting now to look at counter UAS, but what else is going to need to happen in order for us to kind of open our eyes, not just the U S mm -hmm. but, you know, kind of globally to against that threat. Well, thank you, Dr. Sakar. Good question. Um, it's something I think world leaders have been grappling with for the last 10 years. Um, you know, I think the U.S. geographical combatant commanders, you know, a couple of years ago, I think when General Dunford was the chairman, he said, look, we got to be better coordinated in the future because China is in almost every geographic combatant command's backyard now. Uh, I had mentioned the Center for a Secure Free Society and we look at Western Hemisphere. So we're looking at, you know, companies buying farmland in the U.S. We're looking at ports in the Western Hemisphere in Latin America. We're looking at space ground stations in Latin America. Uh, Caribbean, you know, now there's a uh, agreement between Cuba and China for access for training to a uh, training facility that had been previously a segment platform on an island off the coast of Cuba. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a huge problem. And I think what's interesting is when people start standing back up and pushing back, like the Philippines citing the unclose, the UN treaty and decision, uh, President Marcos having a totally different perspective and approach than President Duterte. Uh, I was encouraged to see their Coast Guard film and attribute, because what happens if you don't do that, there's going to be a fait accompli approach and they're going to seize what they want to seize. So there has to be some firm, uh, you know, resolve to be able to push back a little bit, but you can't do it alone. It has to be a coordinated effort between countries that are allies and partners. And I think when you look at the Quad in the Indo-Pacific with India, Australia, U.S. and Japan, that is starting to bear some fruit. Um, you know, having been stationed in Japan for three years and then working in Marfil Pak for three years, 10, 15 years ago, I never would have thought the Japan Self-Defense Force where they are today. They have dramatically increased their capabilities and I think you're going to see it as a trend with a lot of other governments and a lot of other militaries. So I hope that answers your question. It's a coordinated effort. Can't be done alone. And I think the NATO conference was one of those steps uh, because what Putin has done with uh, his ambitions is he's exactly uh, encouraged more people to join a coalition or alliance by trying to prevent it. And I think China may run into the same problems. I think we should closely pay attention to China's economic issues because they are the only country I know of right now that hasn't had a 2008 housing crisis, with mortgages, in the banking industry. So when you have a command controlled economy, it's part free market, but the communist party can go in and tinker with it. What are the repercussions or potentials with that? So I don't think we've been doing a lot of hard look at that. And I think it's an important issue is where are they economically? 
so I think uh, that'll be it for questions. I wanted to see if you had any closing comments you wanted to make before we closed out the episode. Yeah, the only thing I really have to say is thanks for the opportunity to come in and talk today. Uh, great questions from the audience today. Um, I will provide in the next 24 hours an electronic copy of this article, and it has links in it to the Regular Warfare Center and uh, other documents that I've referenced today. And that way people can reach out if they're interested. And I'll, I'll, do, an, I'll do some more on this as, as part of my commitment as a non-resident fellow, but I hope to also get into other issues. Um, recently, I did an op-ed on uh, proliferation of drones in North Africa, uh, where Algeria and Iran have provided uh, drones to the Polisario because they were unhappy with the Abraham Accords and the U.S. recognition of Western Sahara as part of Morocco. Uh, that's about the same time the drone proliferation was going very thickly in Ukraine. Um, so if we have opportunities to look at issues like that, uh, I think we should get them out there to share them in the greater community of interest. And I shared the link to the uh, Irregular Warfare Center in the chat for those that are there. And then once the uh, episode gets posted to uh, YouTube and Spotify, it'll, I'll include it in the show notes uh, also there too. So um, with that, we are gonna conclude our session today. So uh, thank you, sir, for your time and your insight. Uh, thank you to everyone who joined us today in the chat. Uh, that's all we have for today. So go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Krulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.